Upic, Downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com. And from listeners like you. Welcome to the local edition news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole, and I'm joined tonight by Bill Williams from the Kingfisher Project because this is first Tuesday of the month, and that's when we air the Kingfisher Project. Sometimes we air it on additional weeks as well when when we've got time and we have extra interviews to air, but I'm joined by Bill Williams, a host of the Kingfisher Project Information Against Addiction Bill, thank you for being here with us during the the during local edition. You're quite welcome, Jason. And why are you here tonight? Well, I'm here so we can listen to part two of our interview with Carrie Blakinger about her memoir, uh, Corrections in Ink. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Carrie was a um, just a reminder. Carrie was a very talented figure skater with uh, championship potential, which she abandoned and uh, got involved with drugs at around age 17 and uh, ultimately was arrested uh, for drug possession, drug sales, and served time in New York State Prison. And that's what part of her memoir is about. She went on to become a, a journalist, and uh, we'll pick up her interview there. She certainly had some risky behavior in between her skating career and when she became a journalist. Okay, so we're going to get back into this interview that, that we've been talking about. But as we do remember that this is only possible, the conversations like these, the Kingfisher Project itself is only possible because listeners like you support this radio station. We are looking for your support. Bill and I will be back before long to ask you for your support again. But in the meantime, you can go to WJFFradio.org, click Donate Now, or call us here at 845-482-4141. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured Kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thank you, Julie. It seems to me you've, you've, you've dodged a machine gun's fire worth of bullets in terms of things that could have been harmful to you that could have made your life much worse. We're lucky to have you around. We're lucky to have corrections and ink in front of us. Um, yeah, thank you. I Yes, I mean, I think this is true for a lot of people that have survived addiction in prison. You know, there's a lot of things that absolutely could have killed me. I mean, I guess that's true for most people in life. But, you know, yeah, I, I'm definitely definitely cognizant of that, as I, particularly as I was writing the book. A, a lot of the... Uh... Early writing was about you and what was going on with you personally. Uh, 
And then toward toward the second part of the book, uh, you were writing more about the system at large. It was still your story, but it it seemed to me that it opened up more to incorporate other people. Well, I mean, I think you're right, but I think part of that is just because that's sort of how my life went, like in the early parts of jail, like there was a lot of dramatic things going on in my life. I got married. I got divorced. I was on bad terms with my parents. I was on good terms with my parents. I was dealing with like, you know, how much time am I going to get sentenced to? Um, There was just a lot of, you know, I was, oh, that's right. I was also finding out that I had hepatitis C. I was getting um, kicked out of Cornell. Like I had all of these sort of dramatic um you know, just events that were going on in jail. And by the time I got to prison, some of that settled down. And, you know, I I think that's part of why the book at that point ends up focusing more on the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could have made those observations that I had other, you know, things like plenty of other commentary and observations about the world around me in jail as well. But um, you know, that part of the book was just sort of necessarily more plot driven in some ways, just because my life was hectic. So like I, I could have, I don't know, spent a lot more of the book in jail and made some of those observations then, but, uh, those chapters were filled with other things. Yeah. You mentioned movie early on getting moved around a lot, uh, getting boarded out, as you said, and then within the state system, getting moved around to different prisons, different facilities. Is this a common thread across jurisdictions? Um, That is very common. Um, I think actually in a lot of states, people get moved around even more than I did. Um, But as a female in prison, there are a limited number of times you can get moved because there are typically just fewer women's facilities. Yeah. But even so, I was struck by the need, or, or at least, I don't know what this need, but, but why the system moves people as much as it does. Is it a reminder of who's in control, or is it just the system just doesn't work? Well, I mean, I think I sort of explained the details of why I got moved all those times. You know, in... The first few times that I got moved, which I got sent from, you know, I got arrested was in Tompkins County, and then I got sent to Shenango County and back three times. And that was because at that point, Tompkins County didn't have enough room for all the women at once. So when there was too many women that got booked in, the extras would get boarded out to other jails. And then when I went to state prison, you know, you typically do your first month or so in uh, reception. And... And, you know, which is where they sort of evaluate you and, you know, decide what prison you're going to long term. So, you know, I was there for a month or so. And then I went to Albion, which is where they were sending most women at the time. And then I got sent to Taconic because it was determined that there was a drug treatment program they wanted me to do that was only at Taconic. And then when I finished there, I got sent back to Albion for release. So, I mean, this is all like it wasn't just like I was being sent places for no reason. There were reasons. It's just that, you know, the system is sort of bulky and unwieldy and um, inefficient. Yeah. You write toward the end, you talk about who the women in jail are. And I'm going to quote you. Uh, More than half the women in prison are survivors of physical or sexual violence, and roughly three-quarters have mental health problems. A fifth of young prisoners, people under 30, spent time in foster care. 
Most prisoners grew up poor. Many are not literate. And studies have shown most did not graduate high school. It makes me think of the uh, parts of our country where the deaths of going to prison is an alternative to the deaths of despair from drugs, unemployment. Uh, this is just one more symptom of, of what we see in our country at large. Do I make any sense when I say that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's an alternative, though, to deaths of despair, because those deaths of despair still happen in prison. Um, yeah. You know, people do die of drug overdoses in prison, and there is a high suicide rate in prison. Um, so it's actually, I would say, just a different setting for where those deaths of despair occur. Yeah. Uh, and then you also mentioned that uh, 85% of New York State parolees wind up behind bars again. That's an astonishing number to me. Uh, but also uh, that some of those reasons people are behind bars are for really pretty much petty offenses, missing curfew by 15 minutes or something like that. Uh, yeah, I think that's less true than it was um, when I was on parole because a number of states have stepped away from technical violations or using technical violations as much which is when somebody is, their parole gets revoked for something that is not a new crime. So that would be something like, you know, missing curfew, um, missing drug treatment classes, um, even, you know, drinking alcohol, things that are not crimes, but simply against the rules of parole. Um, a lot of states have stepped away from using that as much as they used to. So that's, I, I would suspect that number is probably lower now, but um, without the citations in my book in front of me. <laughs> I don't right. remember off the top of my head what year that, that number is from. Yeah. Um, WJFF is located in, in Liberty now, not too far from Monticello. And you mentioned in your book, Driving from Ithaca to Monticello to Get Drugs. I'm curious how you knew uh, Monticello would be a good destination. Um, that's because the person I was dating at the time was from Liberty. Ah, interesting. A local problem. You, you talked just now about the people still die, of course, deaths of despair in prison. Um, what are some of the health health risks of incarceration? I know that lowered life expe life expectancy is one. Any others that come to mind? I mean, I think that's a pretty big one, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think that actually kind of encompasses all of the other ones, right? You know, um, and any sort of, and any health effects are typically, and any of the negative health effects of incarceration are typically going to impact your lifespan. Um, but I mean, there's bad dental care also. So, you know, prison is not good for your teeth or your likelihood of having them afterwards. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, I think there's also just a lot of mental health impacts of prison because there's a lot of aspects of prison that are particularly traumatic. And I know that there's a lot of people who just don't care because, you know, they're of the opinion that, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. But, you know, regardless of how you feel about, like, do prisoners deserve to be traumatized in the course of punishment, um, if you traumatize people, you are making them, you're, you're sort of undermining the purpose of prison, because I think there are a number of goals of prison, but one of the sort of clear ones that we can all agree on is that at the least prisons should make, they should improve public safety. They should make the community safer. That's sort of the point of having them. 
But if you take a bunch of people who are already, you know, living on the fringes and um, often in particularly vulnerable groups and you traumatize them for several years and undermine their dignity and basic humanity and then release them, that's just simply not a recipe for making better members of the community. Um, So I I think that the mental health effects of prison are also significant and they impact both, you know, the individual in harming their mental health and the community in that they don't help to create better community members. Well, we've handed over a lot of our mental health issues to prison, not to be solved, but just to be stored. Yep. Yeah, I mean that's that's I think that's been true for a few decades at this point. But yeah, yeah. Um, I'm jumping around a little bit, but when you were in when you were in school, you talk about not necessarily being one of the cool kids. Um, are there any similarities between your early school experience and and your later incarceration in terms of the way people behaved, groups formed, and how people treated one another? Um, I I mean. I don't know what to say to that. Like, I mean, only in the sense that there are similarities among any human organization. But, I mean, I think that a, you know, the the way that Saudi girls treat each other at 13 in a private school is pretty substantially different from the way that people interact with each other in in prison. Yeah. Uh, well, having taught in a private school, I've seen how snotty girls can treat one another and it's not always pleasant for sure. Right. It's definitely not always pleasant, but, um, you know, I, I think it's a pretty different set of interactions. I mean, I think that, you know, preteens, you know, early teens have a, a specific sort of insecure jockeying for social standing that I don't really see in any adult groups, prison or otherwise, um, you know, I think that even the the social hierarchies that exist in prison don't have the, um, I don't know, they, they, they feel substantially different than middle school and a private school, obviously. listening to the kingfisher project here on the local edition news and information to keep you connected kingfisher project information against addiction we're listening to bill williams interview with uh, carrie blakinger that was recorded uh, a little more than a month ago right bill correct and now we're hearing the second part of it tonight we're going to get there's still more of the conversation the final part of the conversation is coming up but we're just pausing right now to to ask folks for their support so uh if you can, go to WJFFRadio.org to make a donation. That's WJFFRadio.org. And uh, we would like to thank uh, listener Lisa from Livingston Manor. Thank you so much for being the latest donor now during the news. That donation just, just came through just as that segment was wrapping up. So well, I know some Lisa's in Livingston Manor. Maybe it's one I know. It probably is. Thanks, yes. Lisa. <laughs> 
I after after the last mistake I made, I'm not I'm not about to say anything more than somebody's first name when I read these notices. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. Call eight four five four eight two four one four one. Go to wjffradio.org. You make your donation that way. Uh, and uh, when we get into the second segment, I'll I'll have time to answer the phone. I'm Jason. Bill is here. Bill, we we, we got to get back into the second part pretty quickly here, but is there anything else you want folks to know? Well, yeah, uh, we talk about uh, a prisoner in Texas and uh, who was on death row. And it turns out that within 24 hours of the airing or of the taping, um, his man was named John Ramirez and he was executed in Texas. Um, but the, the reason that Kerry was covering him so thoroughly was he won a, a case in the Supreme Court to have the right to have his pastor allowed to touch him and to pray aloud with him in the execution chamber when he died. Uh, and you'll you'll hear, just listen to her voice, listen carefully to the end of this interview. Okay, so that's coming up in the second part. Now, this is the Kingfisher Project here on Radio Catskills Local Edition. Who uh, whose writing, whose work impresses you? Any any heroes? Anybody you think we should be paying attention to? In terms of uh, yeah, in in terms of opioid coverage, I I'm a big fan of Zach Siegel. Um, Maya Salovitz is great. Also, I think those are two of the people that I read the most on these issues. Yeah, well, I see you on 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 Twitter. I I see that you follow them pretty regularly. Maya's been a guest on this show. She's great. Yeah. I, I find that people like you, people like Maya that have been through it and are have come out sober on the other side and have committed themselves are some of the most generous and certainly articulate and uh people who welcome questioning and, and, and really we need to be list people we need to be listening to if we're gonna think about any effective change. Uh, speaking of effective change, if there are one or two things that you could do to start effect change in our prison system, what would they be? I realize there's probably a list of a thousand, but what do we need to think um, about? I think that's an incredibly broad question, but um, Sorry. you know, it's also one that's one that's difficult to answer as a reporter because you know I I can't be um, taking. Uh, you know, I, I can't have, I can't express certain opinions about things that I'm reporting on. Got it. Um, I yeah. do think that there's, so there, there's some things like, there's some ways in which I can answer this, but, you know, there, there's cer certain places I sort of can't go. I can say that it's pretty clear in a lot of prison systems, you know, in many states as well as the federal government, that um, the ratio between prisoners and staff is problematic at the moment. And some people, you know, insist that that should be described as uh, overcrowding and others, you know, would insist that it's understaffing. I think the reality is that it's both. Uh, I don't think those terms should be used as synonymous because they're not. There are some prisons that are bursting at the seams and there are some prisons that are not bursting at the seams but have a true dearth of staff. And those are separate but related issues and they're extremely problematic because if there are not enough staff, then there's nobody to, you know, let prisoners out to take them to programming. There's nobody to let 
them out for showers or rec. Um, food can be coming irregularly. Uh, mail can take weeks. It just makes all of the the you know all of the aspects of daily life become really difficult and inconsistent. And you know, during some of these staffing shortages in Texas, I've talked to. I, I remember I was talking to a guy on death row at one point who, when I visited him, he hadn't been out to wreck in like 51 days at that point. And they were only showering, you know, every week or so. And that's not uncommon among, uh, you know, among some of the most understaffed Texas prisons. And that's not to say that the staff don't care, but simply, you know, I mean, maybe some of them don't, but, you know, simply that there aren't enough of them. And this is a problem that we see in a lot of different prison systems, especially since COVID. Um, the staffing problems that existed in many states have been significantly exacerbated during COVID when a lot of people quit or died or decided that, you know, they just didn't want to take the risk of working in a prison anymore. So I think that is one of the big things. I think a lot of the other things vary a little bit from state to state. Like I think in Texas, the lack of air conditioning is deeply problematic because you have some units that, you know, the heat index reaches 140 and if you put someone in a, you know, steel and concrete box when it's 100 and, you know, when the heat index is 140 in South Texas heat and South Texas humidity, um, you know, that can, that can be a significant health risk. And it's, it would, I mean, I think you could also make an argument that it's torture, but it's certainly dangerous to detrimental to people's health. Um, you know, and in other states, I think there are, different problems. Uh, you know, some, several states have inedible moldy food. And I think that if you, you know, feed someone moldy or inedible food or inadequate amounts of food for years, uh, there is, aside from the cruelty of doing that, there's, you know, sort of the basic message that you're sending to people about their worth if you're, you know, going to treat them like animals for years and then somehow expect them to get out and be cured. Um, I, I mean, I could go on. I think there's a number of specific problems in different prison systems, but one of the biggest overriding ones that I see is the uh, the number of prisoners versus number of staff. Here in New York, at least in Fishkill this winter, there was a problem, the opposite problem. Uh, we had, it was cold and there was at least one wing in that prison where there was no heat. Yeah, that that actually is also a problem in a lot of these Texas units. They, um, you know, are not well equipped for the winter. They don't care about the summer and they're not equipped for the winter because, you know, we typically don't have particularly harsh winters. But, I mean, with climate change, that has been more of an issue. And I feel like every winter there's a few weeks where there's some unexpected cold snap, usually in some of the units in North Texas, and the prisons just aren't prepared. And it's you know, the heat doesn't work all that well, or they don't turn it on, or people don't have blankets. Um, and I remember last year, I guess that was, wow, that was last year, during the deep freeze in uh, February of 21, where we had a power outage for, you know, in most of the state, um, there were units that, you know, didn't have heat or didn't have light, didn't have water. Uh, you know, all sort, all variety of basic utilities were not available to people in the free world, but were also not available to people in prison. And unlike people in the free world, people in prison don't have any ability to leave where they are and potentially, 
you know, seek warmth or light or food somewhere else. Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts? Another book on the works or anything like that, or mostly uh, your reporting? Um, I am thinking about putting together a proposal for a second book. I'm sort of playing with it, trying to figure out if that's what I want to do. Um, I, it relates to a magazine story that I've been working on for several years. It's been a sort of, you know, slow burn of reporting in the background as I've been doing other things. So, I mean, I'm thinking about that, but I haven't sort of committed to it yet. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm casting about for that right now. I am in the middle of, uh, shooting a short documentary about a guy on, death row who is scheduled for execution in I think about nine days um, and I've been interviewing him off and on for two years and you know we've done a few on camera I've interviewed him for a few written articles before and the next you know week and a half is going to be pretty intense I'm I'm going to death row to interview him for the last time on Wednesday and um, you know, we're going to spend the days in between that and his currently scheduled execution one week later, uh, talking to his friends and family and, you know, hopefully the victim's family and the district attorney and, you know, a few other people. So, um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. And, and it's been, um, you know, I've covered a lot of executions. I've written about death row a lot. Um, I've witnessed a few executions. This one is a lot harder for me because I've talked to him so much and because I know so well who he is as a person today versus who he was as a person when he committed that crime. I mean, I didn't know him when he committed the crime, obviously, but he's talked a lot about, um, you know, about how how he's changed and um, what remorse looks like for him and, you know, trying to make right in these last few days and you know I've been sort of struggling with what I can even do as a reporter um there's so there's so I'm trying I I think about how there's you know if you had nine days left to live and you knew you were going to get killed like I I think of like the things of the world the memories that I would want to take with me like the I don't know the the last moments of beauty or humanity that I would want to be able to see, like, I don't know, a sunrise, a sunset, um, you know, or I'd, I'd want to like hug a friend. He can't do any of those things. Um, the only thing that I feel like someone in the free world can give him other than, you know, some, you know, connection in terms of listening to him is, is words. Like he can still read. So I've been you know, I, I sent him a poem yesterday and I'm going to, I think, send him a poem a day for, you know, the next few days. Um, because I feel like at this point, I, I'm, I'm just sort of imagining what are the last vestiges of humanity or beauty that I can share with him. And I feel like words is, um, words are about the only thing. And he doesn't have enough time yet left to be reading books. So it's kind of down to poems. Yep. I know I, I know I kind of I kind of went on a tangent there but that's um that's a lot of what I've been thinking about in the past few days. And that was some interview Bill 
We hear Thank what you. you were saying there. Yeah. So that and, and so uh, the person she was talking about was actually executed uh, not more than a day after that conversation. Yeah. Um, or at least the day after the conver- after it, after it aired. Oh, the day after it aired, which after yeah, aired. like she'd said, had been about nine days. Uh, she she did not mention his name, but his name was John Henry Ramirez, whose uh, spiritual advisor was allowed to pray aloud and to lay hands on him after, as he died. Uh, after a Supreme Court ruling led to new guidelines in his case and in similar requests in prisons across the country. Wow. That spiritual advisor was, was with him um, in the 14 minutes it took him to die between when he was first injected and then pronounced dead. And that was, uh, and he went to court for that. He went to court for that, went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for bringing these stories to us and all of the stories that you bring to us on the Kingfisher Project. airs the first Tuesday of the month uh, here on the local edition and sometimes airs some other times as well. Bill, thank you so much for all the work that you've done here. I appreciate it, Jason. And, and we'll be back again next next in December now. In December, that's right. And big thanks to uh, Carrie Blakinger for being so generous with her time. Absolutely. To talk to us, author of Corrections in Ink. It's out there right now. Bill, thanks so much. Have a good night. Thanks, Jason. Same to you. Coming up in less than a minute, it is Music Emporium with Mr. Kusar Grace. Phenomenal two-hour mix of music. We're looking for your support now in honor of the local edition, in honor of the Kingfisher Project, which airs here on the local edition, in honor of Kusar Grace Music Emporium. Coming up next... This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. If you have something to give, please do give at WJFFRadio.org. Make your donation now at WJFFRadio.org or call 845-482-4141. It's 845-482-4141. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, and WJFFRadio.org. Give now. Give what you can. Stay tuned. It's time for the...